Okay. So what are some, what did you come up with? And are there any issues here? Like what about or what if? I'm smiling because I love that question, you know, because it's, it's deep and it, 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 it gets at many things. Like, um, so the question was essentially, if I, if I create a code that includes some implicit view of what's right and what's wrong, right? Like an employee, let's say, who is greedy and let's say it goes past someone who just likes getting big tips or wants a raise, but maybe someone who lies about expenses or leaves a little early it says he or she worked a whole day or something like that, you know, right? Yeah. Right. So, okay. So there are two things here. One is, what is our standard? And is it a wise standard? And then more, more deeply, which is your real question, is it legitimate to have a standard at all? Okay. So, um, and then we, that also often stirs up more psychological issues, not so much philosophical or moral issues, but psychological issues like, do I get to say what I think is right? So, um, first I think that, you know, people vary in their standards and there are a lot of uh, gray zones. So, what, from one person's perspective, what is, an, uh, you know, a, um, an ambitious and uh, irritating employee from the standpoint of the employee or maybe the employee's partner who says, we need more money, you know, that's an employee who's just trying to rise high fast, you know, so, you know, it depends. But clear things like stealing, right, or in relationships, uh, violence or the threat of violence or um, sexual infidelity that breaks the rules and understandings in the relationship or um, <coughs> Uh, uh, making agreements that routinely are broken, you know, or uh, giving unwanted advice. Uh, with my own mother, after our kids came along, I finally had to say to her, uh, Mom, I'd, from now on, I'd appreciate it that you never offer any evaluations or advice about how we're raising our children. I said it almost exactly like that calmly, but I looked her in the eye and paused. And she said, I don't do that. <laughs> and I said, great, then there won't be a problem. <laughs> I admit it, I slipped it in. Oh my God, bad karma. But anyway, um, then I watched her for the next hour try to talk, because it was really hard for my, my mom had a huge, huge heart, no longer alive, very hard for her not to give advice. You know, a nightmare mother-in-law for my wife in many ways. Um, it was good. It was well-intended advice. It was really annoying when it was actually right occasionally, you know? You know how that is. So anyway, my point is that I think there are things where we go, yep, that standard is reasonable. Now then we get to the deeper question is, is it okay for us to have a standard, to set a standard? 
I personally think it is. I think it's a standard to think that there should be no standards. There's no way out of the values box. We're always in the values box. Right? It's a very postmodern view, but we're always in the values box, including the value that says we should not have values. That's just a value. Um, and I think for a lot, what? Yeah, OK. The thing I want to get at, though, because I see this a lot in people, they don't feel entitled to their getting their own needs met. That's the underlying issue. Does a person feel entitled to getting his or her needs met? And I think it's especially appropriate to say, does the person feel entitled to getting her needs met? Because not always, but on the average, girls are socialized more than boys are to put the needs of others first. So sometimes there's a, there's a gender issue here as well. Not always. I've known a number of men who had a really hard time communicating their own emotional needs, this man included, because that was not masculine somehow. You know, so suffering knows no bounds of gender, right? Um, okay, so far? So I think it's appropriate to clarify in your own mind what are appropriate values and then figure out, in particular, what are your values? Start with your values. And if your value is you don't want to be greedy, start there. You know, um, for example, various people who are parents will go to teachers in Southeast Asia and say, how can I bring my children to the Dharma? And the teacher will say to them usually, bring yourself to the Dharma first. <laughs> you know, start with yourself. Uh, there's a famous story, actually, this mother Gandhi would, uh, people would stand in line, uh, hundreds of people, maybe thousands, to come talk to him for a few minutes each to get advice. And this woman stood in line and finally came to see him. And um, she said, I have my son and he does nothing but eat candy all day long. I want you to tell him to stop eating candy. Gandhi said, hmm, come back uh, three days from now. All right. The, so the, you know the story? So the mom brings the kid back. Three days later, they stand in line again. They finally get to see Gandhi. Gandhi looks at the kid and goes, stop eating candy. The mother says, what? Why did I have to stand in line twice? Why didn't you tell him that the first time? You could have told him that the first time. Gandhi said, I was still eating candy then. <laughs> we don't always have to do it. I think it's OK sometimes for the pot to call the kettle black, you know, because you know, sometimes we also think we can't call others on things because we're still doing it ourselves or we're not a perfect saint ourselves. I mean, that also is a trap. But, you know, on the whole, we want to look to ourselves. That said, um, maybe this is a good opportunity for me to say from some experience, what are some useful ways to negotiate with other people? One is to use the formula of nonviolent communication. How many of you know that formula? Well, a few. Okay, I'll say it. It's a wonderful body of work. It's a great, there's a great book called Nonviolent Communication. It's a very quick read uh, by Marshall Rosenberg. And um, it's a method that's used in high conflict situations as well as in interpersonal relationships. It boils down to a fundamental formula. When X happens, I feel Y because I need Z. That's the essence of it. When X happens, I feel Y because I need Z. And then sometimes you can add to that if it's appropriate. So from now on, I request such and such. Right? In the example I gave with my mother, I put it into the future because most quarrels are about the past. Do you ever notice that? Most wrangles, you think about this difficult thing that you're working with here, the most upsetting relationship in your life. Probably much of it is about the past. What happened or the story about what happened. You know, you were late. I wasn't late. I was only ten, it was only 10 minutes after 6. That's late. Well, why, what do you mean? You're so 
anal. You're so compulsive. That's not late, late, you know. Besides, you never empty the dishwasher the right way. What do we mean, the dishwasher? You know, it's all about the past. Much better. Focus on agreements for the future. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'll go back to it. Yeah, when X happens, and now X, and I'll go through it slowly now, and X is described neutrally and fairly, like any independent person, you know, the man from Mars, would go, yep, that's what happened. Not, when you're a jerk, <laughs> that's not a good X, right? When you, okay, when you agree to come home at 6 to help with the children and come home at 6.30 and act like nothing happened, okay, that's, that's an X, that's clear. Then I feel why, right? And what you, what you feel is emotions or body sensations, not I feel you are an idiot. <laughs> That's not good, you know. <laughs> it's emotion, okay? When X happens, I feel why, because I need Z. And the Z is, again, a deep need. Not I need you to quit acting like your father. No. But more like I need to feel safe. I need to feel I matter to the people I live with. I need to feel that I can count on the people I live with to be reliable in basic fundamental ways. I need to feel um, respected by people that I'm investing myself in. These are deep needs, universal human needs. Okay? When X happens, I feel Y because I need Z. When people are talking about events like the past, they're very easy to argue with. When they're talking about um, how things should be, they're easy to argue with. But when they simply say what their experience is and what their needs are and what their wishes are for the future, they're very hard to argue with. You're on really solid ground there. So that's a very powerful formula. And like a lot of forms, we default to it when we're in trouble. When things are going okay, it's fine to freestyle, right? But when it starts getting sticky, then we go back to these fundamental formulas that work really, really well. So that would be one thing. The second thing that I've seen with people when you negotiate is to make it really clear what would solve this problem. And I've been in situations with many people where they'll say things and it's really not clear what would make this problem go away. So it's often helpful, I think, to define it quite clearly, whether it's a person in, we're working with or I did, I've done a lot about parental teamwork because that's often where really tricky issues arise. How do we work as a team now that this kid has come and we can no longer agree to disagree? Because you can't agree to disagree about raising a child. You're either doing this or you're doing that. You know, It's binary. So um, it really helps to pin it down. So I, I myself will, because I'm on my own side, and I don't want people to have complaints with me. This was a real key breakthrough for me when I realized that it was self-interested to figure out the maximum reasonable extent of what people wanted from me and give it to them. Because then they would stop ragging on me. They would stop being mad at me. I don't want people mad at me, right? Do you want people mad at you? No, really. You know, the fastest way to get people off your back is to zero out their complaint. That's pretty dramatic. Well, that's the trick then. But very often, there's a reasonable essence to another person's complaint that will give them what they need. And if you're dealing with someone that is truly a black hole, the fastest way to find out is to go to the maximum reasonable extent first of what you can do for them, to be the best possible person you can be. That's, that, that's what the monks do. That's what the nuns do. That's what the deep practitioners do. 
they just do the, they do the best they can by other people. And then they see what's, what's left, you know, what's there. Okay? So now to go one step further, then in terms of making it really clear what you want for from the other person, to offer clean requests. A clean request, you know. Most, a lot of requests come out, they're very, they don't come out as a request, they come out as an order. And um, every communication has three elements to it. This is very practical, my personal experience. It has an explicit content, it usually has an emotional tone, and third, most importantly, it has an embedded statement about the nature of the relationship. And that last part is the most important for most of us, but it's often what we pay the least attention to. For example, to make a generalization about gender with many, many exceptions, on the average, men tend to value autonomy and where they are in the hierarchy, and they do not want to be dominated. That's a very fundamental kind of imperative on the average for typical men. How much of that is biology? How much of that? A lot, I'm sure, if not all of it, is culture. Not exactly easy to sort out. But bottom line, for many men, that's the, that's the, that's the baseline issue that matters most. Okay? For many women, again, on the average, with many exceptions, as a generalization, okay, trying to walk my way through the minefield of talking about gender, um, their, pre their, their very high priority is in important relationships, are we connected? Are we with each other? All right? So something comes up, like how to put the dishes in the dishwasher. I'm assuming there are dishwashers in Canada, right? Not everybody has dishwashers or something like that. But you know, I'm joking, I hope you understand. But anyway, okay? And so let's say man and woman. Uh, and by the way, I've, I've seen these distinctions between masculine and feminine so style in same-sex couples. Sometimes, not always, but often it kind of goes that way. So to the extent that this is relevant in that situation, think about that as well. So. One person comes home and says, oh, you know, the dishes are loaded the wrong way, right? I thought we agreed that we were going to put the glasses in like this, okay? All right? So let's say, and I'll do it in terms of men and women as a generalization. She says to him, I thought we, you know, we're going to load the dishwasher that way, you know, uh, come on, right? Now, what could get triggered in him is, who are you to boss me around? Wait a minute here. So then he gets his triggered about being bossed around. Suddenly that underlying need or issue is being activated. On the other hand, so then he says to her maybe in this little example, hey, I'm going to put him in how I want to put him in. Right? He's just asserting that we're now horizontal again. No more of this, uh, you're one up, I'm underneath you. No way, Jose. Uh, you know, ba-boom. We're like this. And, and he says, hey, you're not going to tell me what to do. And for her, that means, what? We're not together anymore? <laughs> like, what? Wait, 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 wait. The earth is shaking now. We're not on the same page. I don't seem to matter to you. Wait, 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 wait. And so then suddenly, it's not about the dishwasher any longer, is it? It's about autonomy or intimacy. And then people go to war, right, around that. So very often what helps is to try to sense what are the deeper needs? What are the deeper issues? What are the Z's in oneself and the other person? Try to get down to that deeper level and then negotiate at that deeper level. So in a hypothetical, and I used to be a business consultant to uh, businesses, including smaller businesses, you know, so some background there, um, to try to find out, look, I, let's say, um, I'm just going to make up a little story. I don't know the detail. If I'm the boss, let's say, I have a need 
to not be continually pushed for more money. Because it's unsettling to me, it makes me wonder if you're unhappy, it makes me wonder if, um, when are you going to leave, you know, it, just, it's, it disturbs me it's, and, you know, it rattles me. On your side, I can see that you, you need money and you need some sense of predictability. So, and then this is me and I don't know the exact details. Um, I do not like the idea of being afraid, as I said earlier and things that make me afraid. So I work my way. You can see I'm anxious by temperament. I don't like being afraid. I work my way to what would, what would solve this problem. And honestly, bottom line, it's to have an agreement about, look, this is what I can offer. This is, I think, also a fair market. I know that I can go out into the labor market, especially in today's economy, and find someone, a good person, who will work for that much money. I don't want to do that, but I'm willing to do that. It really helps to know what your walk away is. Under what conditions will you get a divorce? You know, under what conditions will you fire someone? Under what conditions will you leave a relationship? Because right. uh, that empowers you. And then you talk with the person in a very clear way and try to find what really is going to make this person happy. Now, here's a key point. If you think about it, there's the size of a relationship and then there's the conditions that support it. If a relationship is bigger than the fundamental pillars that support it, that's a dangerous situation. That's a bad situation. On the other hand, if the relationship is smaller than its true foundation, that's a lost opportunity. So what happens a lot in life, and I do this with clients by drawing a circle then I erase it and stuff like that. So just imagine that's what's happening here. If this is how big the relationship is to start with, then you discover, aha, aha, I really can't do any kind of business thing with you. So we carve that out. Or, aha, I can't count on you to be on time. Or to do anything where you make a promise like helping out with a family event or doing something. So I'm never going to ask that for from you. Or, aha, I realize I can't really tell you a secret or something in confidence because you'll just blab. Aha, I'm going to carve that out as well. And after a while, you come up with a relationship that has shrunk to the true foundation. And, and that's, to me, that's truthful, that's skillful, that's honorable. It's causes and conditions. What are the causes and conditions of a wholesome relationship? It's very tricky when you can't shrink it to, the, to that size. Let's say you're a parent of a, of a young adult who is doing all kinds of you know, difficult things or even harmful things to you directly. Uh, you know, and then I think what happens is you work with this in your mind. But the general principle is very true. It's the idea of shrinking the relationship or scaling the relationship to the size that's safe and being prepared to do that unilaterally. Okay. So this is under the general heading of unilateral virtue. For me, these are practical skills. All right? And what helps to do them in the brain is one, activating the felt sense of strength. Two, labeling. It's a noting practice. Labeling what the case is, what the truth is. There's good research that shows that when we label what's happening, including our emotions about what's happening, that activates the prefrontal cortex, which is sort of the inner chair of the committee, if you will, kind of lives up here more than anywhere. And it also calms down the amygdala alarm bell, just naming it, just labeling it. Right. Additionally, something that helps us you know, be strong and unilateral in this way is to really keep taking in the felt sense of being cared about by others 
belonging to things that are good, being connected with others, because that helps us be strong. Right. Okay. Maybe one more situation, then I'll move on. Any more? What we're talking about here is how to combine compassion and kindness on the one hand with assertiveness on the other. How to combine them. Please. From the child. Yeah, and you can't, there is no point at which you can say, I've had it, yeah. I'm going to leave. That's right. Um, and one of my core values is you know, protecting my own needs. Uh, but, you know, I have a three year old daughter, and sometimes her needs are greater than what I can provide. Yeah. Um, please talk about it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I've written a lot about it because I lived it. You know, we have a 22 year old and a 20 year old. And I think that. Um, This issue of around parenting, um, I don't know what the statistic is in Canada. In America, three in four women will have a child, right? And uh, I suspect it's probably about the same in Canada. So that's a pretty high percentage. Um, and in America, there are about four million babies born a year, three million for the two as firstborns. So that's a lot. You know, a lot of people go through this this process, and it has a tremendous impact on the next generation. So trying to help parents deal with it me as a very leveraged way to help society. Um, so I've, I've thought a fair amount about it, including the ethics of it, right? Because part of it's almost like an ethical issue. The needs of the child sometimes colliding with the needs of the parent. When they're the same, it's no problem. I actually did my dissertation on 15-month-olds being offered alternatives by their parent rather than just saying no. Because it's easy to raise kids. You know, the moments when they want the same thing as you, that's easy. Right? That's easy street. It's one that there's a collision of wanting. That's where we're in trouble. And that also is, as a sidebar, a very interesting investigation of how wanting or desiring is socialized right, from a Buddhist frame. Because when I did that dissertation, I thought it was already pretty Buddhist and thinking a lot about that. Isn't that interesting? How wanting itself gets trained. Um, how our own wants were responded to and um, how um, that really affects how we manage wanting into adulthood as well. So it's interesting to ask yourself, how were your wants responded to when you were very young? And then how has that continued to affect you today, both in ordinary ways and then also in terms of dharma practice? Okay? So now to the point. Um, That's where I think, uh, first of all, it really helps to have a code of virtues, you know, in your own mind. Um, I realized that myself, um, I had a real turning point with my wife when our son was very little. Uh, my best friend Bob had come to visit us, and he and I were going to do what we routinely did, some kind of outdoor thing. In this case, we were going to go sailing. And before kids, my wife and I were just, it was cool. I'd go sailing, she'd go shopping, or whatever. You know, she'd have a good day, I'd have a good day. We'd come together for dinner, it was fine. No big deal, right? Lots and lots of autonomy. So I remember this moment. She had forests in her arms, and what's amazing about little kids, they're like little larvae. They're like so little. They're little caterpillars, right? They're like that big. They're so small. It's amazing. And holding him. And I said, oh, by the way, honey, you know Bob's coming to town? She goes, yeah. I said, he and I, you know, Saturday, we thought we'd go sailing. I'm going to rent a boat and, you know, for the day and come back. We'll have dinner together. And she looked at me with this little baby, you know, her first child in her arms. She went, what? <laughs> you know, like that's all she just looked at me like. 
And she's really a mellow, nice person. You know, that's one reason I've been married a long time. Um, and uh, but she really gave me the eye. The eye really got it. And I remember, honestly, it was about three to five seconds long. It was like one of these moments where time slows down. Your whole life goes before your eyes. And I got, my life has changed forever. Because <laughs> I got, I had to take her into account in a whole new kind of way. It's taking the other into account. Taking the other into account. Give no person cause to fear you. That's taking them into account, right? Okay. So I realized that. And then I realized, oh, okay, we've got to figure this out. And then, then it gets very interesting because to sustain all the giving for children that children really need, and I, in my view, speaking personally, we have a moral duty to them. We've inflicted consciousness on unsuspecting flesh, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's our fault. We did it. We got them into this pickle, okay? So here they are. I think we have a great moral duty to them. From a practical standpoint, if we're going to sustain our giving to our children, especially in a context in which the village it takes to raise a child is more like a ghost town these days, especially in the West, especially in the more urban environments in North America, um, you know, where the village now is a village of two, and if you're a single parent, it's a village of one, typically, yeah. Well, guess what? To sustain for the marathon, anyone can sprint fast, but to sustain a marathon, that's the 20-year or longer marathon, um, you've really got to keep filling yourself. You've got to keep filling your own cup to be able to keep pouring it out to the children. Otherwise, you get depleted. And my first book was about a depleted mother syndrome that I think a number of women transit, especially when kids are young, long past the postpartum period, when they, after which they fall off the radar of the healthcare system, you know, as anybody that really matters. So it, it, this gets at the thing we were saying over here. It's enlightened self-interest to take good care of yourself in order to be able to be more giving to others. To be able to sustain nurturance for our kids, we have to really fill ourselves up. To take, to, in other words, to be kind to other people, we need to take good care of ourselves. And for me to give my wife the kind of husbanding that she really needed, and that also was going to trickle down and really support our kids, I had to also take care of my own needs. I had to find time to um, go out in the wilderness, which fed me. We had to talk about sex after kids, you know. Uh, I, had to take, I had to have my needs met as well. Uh, and then in a wonderful circle, right, it's almost a, a nice analogy that Pascal said very beautifully and kind of embarrassed me at lunch or just before lunch, but it's that relationship between the monastic community and the lay community. They each take care of each other. And in the process of taking care of each other, you know, they each have more to give the other person. The thing I see routinely is people don't take good enough care of themselves. For all the talk about people being selfish, they're not really taking good care of themselves. Step one, put your own oxygen mask on first. It's worth asking yourself, particularly in terms of this most upsetting relationship in your life, how could you take care of yourself better? Whatever it is, more bubble baths, more rest, more glasses of wine, ignore what I said about that. Um, um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Less brain, no brain, no pain, you know? No, no, I'm just kidding. Okay. Okay, got to move on. So I, I, I want to move on, all right? How about everybody stand up for a second? Get some oxygen, some fresh air. <coughs> a little stretch. And we'll talk. Oh, that's okay, huh? I'm good. Okay, enough of taking care of yourself. 
Okay, come on back. Okay, could we move the slides forward to evolution? Yeah. Okay. So we're going to have a high energy finish, right? It's a marathon, but we're going to sprint at the end. All right. So, but if I could, you know, if there's, if there's several things I could persuade you to today, you know, for me as values. Like, for example, one would be to really, really make, you know, to, to treat yourself well. To really, this thing of being on one's own side, compassion for oneself, I think that's so important. A second thing is to take in positive experiences, to really, really build up, you know, a neural substrate. A third is to appreciate the pernicious pathological effects of stress. Chronic stress is bad for the, for the body uh, and the brain and the mind, all right? Additionally, I would really encourage this thing of unilateral virtue. Something that's really helped me in my relationships is this idea. And I got, wow, this is a fundamental freedom. All I need to do is mostly focus on being a good person myself. Wow, it really simplified my life. Okay? So on that context now, let's move even further into the deep end of the pool. And I want to talk a little bit about evolution. As you can see, the, the slide up there, um, in the lyric from the Grateful Dead song, what a long, strange trip it's been. I think, you know, it's really long. Evolution is long. Three and a half billion years of life, 600 million years of the nervous system. How many of you have blue or green eyes? You are mutants. Mutants. No one had blue or green eyes. Yeah, yeah, until a, a little kid. I somehow I think of it as a little girl. It could have been a little boy about 5,000 years ago in Denmark, had blue eyes and a lot of great-grandchildren, all right? <laughs> so here we are today. But evolution is continuing, you know? It's a long process. During that long run, next slide, please. Okay, next slide. As I said earlier, there are three basic systems in the brain the, uh, that are motivational systems. The original one, the most primitive, is the avoiding system that freezes or withdraws just gets away, all right? Then came more sophisticated approaching systems that pursue rewards and, and more sophisticated, using more sophisticated strategies. But then layered on top of that was the advent of a marvelous third motivational system, the system for attaching. And it uh, developed in three major steps such that many scientists now say that broadly defined, it's love that's driven the evolution of the brain primarily over the last 80 or so million years. All right, love broadly defined. In other words, the reproductive advantages, that's the engine of biological evolution, the reproductive advantages of social abilities um, conferred such a great advantage that they drove the evolution of the brain. So in three steps, first step, think about reptiles and fish different from mammals and birds. What do mammals and birds do that reptiles and fish don't do? Raise their young, and they often pair bond with each other. And not surprisingly, in proportion to body weight, reptiles, pardon me, mammals and birds have uh, more cortex. Because the computational requirements, computational requirements, as the neuroscientists say, of picking a good mate, 
raising those kids, sorting out who's going to watch the baby wrens and who's going to go get food and worms for the kids, working all that out. It's tough. It's complicated. My wife and I had so much more to think about after our kids came along. That's why mammals and birds have got to be smarter than reptiles and fish. Next big jump was with primates. Primates, the most social um, co collection of species on the, on the uh, planet. And uh, there's a direct correlation between the degree of sociability and the primate group and the size of their cortex in proportion to body weight. In other words, the more, the bigger the grooming group or the more complex the social hierarchies, the more messy the politics and the baboon politics, you know, the more the gossip is, et cetera, the bigger the brain has to be. Okay? And then came our hominid ancestors, going all the way back, let's say, to two and a half million years of making stone tools. The breeding group was a band. In other words, our ancestors lived mainly in bands of 50 to 150 hominids. They bred mainly inside that band. That means that bands which had better cooperation and teamwork competed more successfully against other bands that did not have good cooperation and teamwork. It's like in a sports team. They may not have the most talented players, but if they have the best teamwork, they'll often get all the way into the playoffs and sometimes to a championship. It's useful to appreciate how hazardous you know, life is in a hominid band uh, and how, um, how the effects of small reproductive advantages really accumulate over time when there's a high death rate. And there was a very high death rate, so little things that even conferred like a 3 to 5 percent improved likelihood of survival dominate the uh, ecosystem in about 50 to 100 generations. Just that little 3 to 5 percent benefit accumulated generation after generation after generation in, let's say, easily a thousand generations dominates the ecosystem. And since our ancestors first began making stone tools, there have been about 100,000 or more generations. Lots of opportunities for little things to make a big difference over time, okay? So in that backdrop, I just think it's marvelous to appreciate the ways in which this is called the social brain theory, that love, broadly defined, has really driven the evolution of the brain. Now there's some systems in the brain that do this, and I'm, I'm going to move through this material kind of fast, even though it's pretty fun. So next slide. The brain in lust and love, all right? So if we see someone we're infatuated with, just like I showed you in that slide earlier on, the reward centers of the brain light up, uh, you know, like woohoo, all right? Also, uh, you know, lust usually leads to babies, or especially in the wild before contraception. And so um, that then leads to all kinds of surges of oxytocin, the bonding hormone. I should also add in this slide that lust tends to activate the hypothalamus, which uh, is a part of the brain that governs very, very primal drives, including rage as well as thirst. Uh, and um, interestingly, what? Sex? Yeah. Interestingly, uh, if we're rejected in love, that tends to activate, as we saw earlier in that study in Japan, you know, the insula, which is involved in both physical pain and social pain. So the next slide. 
is a repeat of the slide I showed earlier about the reward center of the brain. And the slide after that is one on oxytocin, which has gotten a lot of press these days. It's a very interesting neurotransmitter and hormone. Women have about seven times as much oxytocin as men do. The men have oxytocin, just like women have testosterone. And um, multiple things cause releases of oxytocin, including hugging, nipple stimulation. It's a letdown um, hormone for women who are nursing, for example. Orgasm, that kind of warm, fuzzy glow we feel after orgasm often tends to promote bonding. Um, oxytocin is also produced uh, by skin-to-skin -skin contact, sustained skin-to-skin -skin contact. It can be self-stimulated, most likely, when you put your hand on your heart or your hand on your cheek. That probably releases oxytocin. Even imagining being in the presence of those who love us can most likely stimulate oxytocin, much as imagining playing a piano piece can build up the neural structure and the motor circuits that are involved in those motions. Okay. Okay. This is a famous quote uh, from the Dharma. Um, the story is, is that Ananda looked at the community of, of monks and that he was part of, or really monastics in general, or the community altogether really, and thought essentially, wow, half the holy life is being supported by people, the other half of the holy life is what I do inside my own head. So he came to the Buddha, his cousin, and um, um, the person that he supported, because Ananda was the Buddha's main attendant, and said to the Buddha, this is half the holy life, noble sir, this community here. And the Buddha said very famously, not so, Ananda, not so. It's the whole of the holy life because it is this community that supports our capacity inside our own minds to practice. Both the community, the literal, physical, tangible community out there, and most importantly, the internalized community in here. You know, the internalized, the, in psychological language, the introjects, the internalization of the experience of being cared about, nurtured, prized by other people is the formation of our own inner community and is a very, very important basis for inner resources. So any questions or comments so far? Okay, next slide please. All right, this then now takes us, this is the us and them slide, All right? To more of a darker consideration. Because much as humans evolved, our bands that were really good at cooperation filled out ecological niches in the Serengeti, you know, in Africa, where we originally came from and then proliferated throughout Europe and Asia as humans spread. Much as improved teamwork and love and altruism and bonding and attachment with us promoted the passing on of genes and the filling in of those niches, so too did skillful aggression and fear with regard to them. Sometimes people think about caveman life, you know, hunter-gatherer cultures as the noble savage, some sort of, what's that movie, Avatar? You know, yeah, which I liked a lot. I thought it was a good political message as well. But that said, um, you know, that vision we have is pretty wrong. For example, in the 20th century, 
a very violent century, right? It's estimated that something like about one in 100 men, 1% 1 of all males born in the 20th century, died due to warfare, either in combat or due to combat or related to famine or starvation or disease of combat, whatever, okay? One in 100. That sounds like a lot, doesn't it? One in 100. The uh, incidence rate, the population rate of schizophrenia is about one in 100 across all cultures. It's a real issue, schizophrenia, right? That's one in 100. Number of males died due to warfare, one in 100. Pretty big deal, all right? Through many studies, it's actually startling how many studies have shown this, of hunter-gatherer cultures living today or ones that have left an archeological record or modeling studies, the best estimates of the number of men who died uh, due to violence in hunter-gatherer cultures is not 1%, it's 15%. 15 times the lethality rate due to male-on-male -male violence in hunter-gatherer cultures. The friction between cultures, sometimes within the band, mostly between bands, very intense, very intense. And our ancestors that were not good at that did not pass on their genes. Our ancestors that were very good at that whoosh, filled out the ecological niches. I didn't understand that concept exactly. Like the males that, that were very aggressive were the ones that proliferated. The it's not just males because uh -huh. it's many multiple systems, for example, are involved in drawing distinctions between us and them, and they're not gender specific. Yes. And studies have shown that if you just arbitrarily assign people to two groups, you like the orange, you know, the blue group and the green group, or you'll give them a funny name. Like if you, like on Survivor, you just make up the name of the tribe, you know, the TV show Survivor, or you just give them an arbitrary name, you know, uh, some nonsense word. Like you're the Gizidich group and you're the Kasquatchi group, whatever. Suddenly the Kasquatchis are going to go, Kasquatchi power rocks, right? Gizidich sucks, you know? Or as my kid said to me once over and over again, kids rule, parents drool. <laughs> that bothered me a bit. But anyway, that's when they were younger. So my point is that when people, we make these distinctions really quickly. And as soon as we do, it very quickly begins that we start feeling superior to them and we also tend to fear them and also we tend to dehumanize them. And those systems are not gender specific. I'm just, I'm trying to say that, it, and it isn't just, um, you know, violence. People, uh, us, them, you know, competition takes many, many forms. But the point is that the two evolve together. That being more lovingly altruistic with us enables us to fight them better. And being good at fighting them gives more resources for us that we can share and cooperate around. So the wolf of love and the wolf of hate co-evolved. That's the scientific view. It's very poignant and tragic in a sense to really appreciate that in a sense the wolf of hate, the skill of our ancestors at between group aggression, the wolf of hate was the midwife of the wolf of love, helped birth the wolf of love. And on the other hand, the wolf of love, you know, the capacity to cooperate with us and love us, fueled the power of the wolf of hate. Both these wolves are in our human heart. 
right? And as I said earlier, the attempt to kill the wolf of hate just feeds the wolf of hate. Any comment or question so far? Oh, how about the next slide, please? Yeah, this is a nice quote that talks about this. And it talks about how the sense of us is very plastic, you know? As it says here, in between family fights, you know, the baboon's us expands to the whole family. Within family fights, the baboon's us contracts to me, myself, and I, the self that we talked about earlier. And I love the line there, you know, this works for baboons as much. That's Romeo and Juliet, the Montagues and the Capulets, you knew that. Okay, next slide, please. So back to us and them. All right, so what do we do about this wolf of hate? How do we deal with it? And I'm going to use the remainder of today to talk about different practices we can do and different ways of working. One of the most powerful ways <clears throat> to deal with the wolf of hate and also promote the wolf of love is through empathy. So is that the slide? Next one. What is the area? What is empathy? Great. Okay. So empathy both helps us bond with, with us and it also tends to break down barriers or false distinctions between us and them. Empathy, interestingly, has three fundamental neural substrates in the brain, which I'll get to in a second. So first of all, do you know what I mean by empathy? It doesn't mean agreement. It doesn't mean approval. It doesn't mean even liking. It just means that you get how it is for another person. I mean, I think of people I don't approve of, I'll be frank, and I often do this, you know, in America, the toughest people for Buddhists to have empathy for are the people on the other side of the political spectrum very often. They'll have empathy for their teenagers. They'll have empathy for their crazy neighbor. They'll even have empathy for their mother-in-law or father-in-law. But empathy for Dick Cheney? Oh, that's a tough one. You know, so I think, wait a second here. It's the, you know, the Dalai Lama story, right? That monk was, fear when he feared for his life, it's when he lost his empathy. Because you need to have empathy to have loving kindness and compassion. Also, uh, next slide please. Empathy in Buddhist practice you know, empathy expresses wise view, this fundamental notion that we're connected with other people. And to go to the last bullet on this particular slide, I think as someone who's been in, you know, New Age and human potential in Buddhist circles a fair amount, I think that sometimes people go to a kind of cheap compassion where they're not really feeling empathy. You know, oh yeah, I wish you well, oh yeah. But they don't really start with a fundamental kind of empathy. I've been on the receiving end for people who um, would express kindness to me, like they'd sign their email, Meta, even after what was read all the way through their email was, I couldn't care less what you're feeling. You know, no empathy, but Meta. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't need that, okay? Yeah, 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 exactly. So, okay. So, empathy is very, very important, very fundamental. Yeah, please. Just, uh, just can you explain the difference uh, between uh, empathy and compassion? Great. For people like uh, for uh, a med friend or a therapist, or, you know, when you have someone in pain in front of you, uh, it's the, uh, the 
well. Uh, huh. But if you have empathy only, empathy is a bit enough. Yeah, great question. Okay, so what's the distinction between empathy and compassion? And it, I think that's a good example of how it helps to be clear about these different things. So empathy, maybe we could go back to the previous slide. Empathy is, in effect, a, a kind of, um, technically, we are simulating over here something of what it's like to be them over there. And to jump ahead a little bit, but we can leave this slide up. Um, we tend to simulate the actions of other people, so we get a sense in our body of what it would feel like if we were, gonna, we were doing those actions or posture or had those facial expressions. Second, we simulate the emotions of other people. We get a sense over here of what you, I would be feeling if I were in your shoes, let's say. And we also simulate the thoughts of other people, broadly defined. That's what's called theory of mind in psychology or developmental psychology where we simulate the attitudes, the motivations, the psychodynamics, the personality features of the other person. All right? So we are, in effect, recreating over here their experience and dynamics over there. That's empathy. If you think about what it is, empathy is morally neutral. Right? Someone who is good at interrogation or torture needs empathy. Autistic people need not apply for those jobs because they would be bad at them. You know, to really, really inflict pain on another person, you know, you have to really have empathy, weirdly enough, for them. You see what I mean? Empathy is morally neutral. Um, empathy also is not, as I said earlier, agreement or approval. Right? Now, compassion, in the Buddhist frame, which I think is useful technically, is the wish that others not suffer, while kindness is the wish that they be happy. Right? In reality, they tend to blur together. It's okay. But it's nice to be able to distinguish them. And the essence of compassion is the intention. It's also often combined with an emotion. But even if the emotion is not there, at least the wish. I wish that you not suffer. I wish that you go to jail, let's say. I wish that you serve a life sentence, but I, but I don't wish that you suffer. You see the distinction there? You know. Like I have a lot of uh, compassion. I, I can find com a lot of I can find a lot of compassion actually, for different political leaders who I also think belong in jail. You know, that's the combination of compassion and assertiveness as an example. So now to go further, you're talking about what people sometimes call compassion fatigue, burnout, right? Exactly, and that's very interesting. And I think people tend to vary there, and that goes to the old saying: fences make for good neighbors. Right? Boundaries enable us to keep loving. You know? um, and so sometimes, depending on the nature of the person, uh, it's important to put up a little bit more of a fence between ourselves and others so that we can keep loving them or keep being a good therapist to them and not get so overwhelmed. This goes to the Buddhist notion of equanimity. You probably know that it's said that there are these four divine abodes or four fundamental qualities of, of, wake, of, an, of, of wakefulness that are present in all of us happily, right? This goes to what I said before lunch about our natural state, our true home base. Those four qualities are, as you probably know, compassion, loving kindness, sympathetic joy, mudita, as happiness for the good fortune of others. That's the opposite of schadenfreude, as I said. And then finally, equanimity. 
to the four. Of those four, it is said that equanimity is the most fundamental. Because if you don't have equanimity, it's hard to sustain the other three. And that is where I think establishing a kind of equanimity that appreciates that other people's lives are subject to 10,000, the way I put it in my mind, the 10,000 causes upstream of the present moment for them. And most of those 10,000 causes, maybe all of those 10,000 causes, do not have our name tag on them. Right? And it's seeing someone, and here's the art, to, to wish them well, to wish that they be happy, to wish that they not suffer, while at the same time not taking inappropriate responsibility for their pain. And seeing in many ways that um, a lot of the factors that are creating their pain are no one's fault. They're certainly not your fault. They're often not the person's fault. And also you can see the ways that mm -hmm, they're putting logs on the fire themselves of their own burning. And it doesn't, the trick here is not to get into, as you were said earlier, judgment about that or righteousness, but to just, it's that quality of, of even keeledness that's equanimity. You know, where you just see it. Right? That's equanimity. And I think um, that's a great example of paradoxically, by seeing the ways that another person is being caused right now by all kinds of things, it helps us be less upset by them, even if they're angry with us. If we can look over there and see many causes, 10,000, who can see, no one can see 10,000 causes, but at least a, a handful of causes that are making them angry right now, right? It becomes more impersonal. It goes to that self thing. It becomes more about okay, here's a situation, it's more impersonal, how do we deal with it? Equanimity is a profound Buddhist virtue. It's very, very deep and it doesn't get a lot of press because it's sort of not very sexy. Equanimity is very, very, very important. You know? And how, I was to say this about the brain, I, I devoted a whole chapter to equanimity because as far as the brain concern, is concerned, equanimity is totally unnatural. Right? Because we're supposed to be reactive. I mean, the natural state has a certain calm to it, but the profundity, equanimity is deeper than calm. Right? Equanimity is, is calm as we're not having reactions. Equanimity is we're not reacting to our reactions. In other words, we're not reacting to whether something is pleasant or unpleasant. Okay? And so how to do that in the brain is quite a challenge, but with practice, you, know, you really can build up the neural circuits of equanimity. Noting helps. That's where you activate the prefrontal cortex, as I said earlier. Also, uh, training more in the parasympathetic nervous system and in embodied tranquility. You see a lot of practice that people who are far along. Monastic practice is a lot about bodily tranquility because it's so fun. It really helps. Another one is deep steadiness of mind. It's interesting that equanimity is seen as the fruit of the third or fourth jhana. Right? You've got to really steady the mind to start tasting that really, really profound equanimity, more than kind of everyday equanimity. Anyway, those are some things that help promote equanimity. Um, insight also promotes equanimity. As one sees increasingly, it's said, if you want to develop equanimity, study impermanence. You know, uh, the, it's funny, as I was thinking about uh, this time with you all, which has, by the way, touched my heart so much, you know, it really has. Um, 
the well-known saying of the Buddha uh, that is often translated, at least in English, as uh, all conditioned things are impermanent. It is their nature to arise and pass away. Those who live in harmony with this truth know the highest happiness. That's equanimity. It's a recognition of everything passes away. All eddies, all swirls end eventually, you know, one way or another. Some swirls are the size of quantum particles. Some swirls are the size of a thought. Neural assemblies, they come together. You know how long a typical neural assembly lasts that is the substrate of a thought in conscious awareness? Two to three seconds at the most. Have you ever noticed that? You can't think the exact same thought from, or feel the exact sensation or exact feeling for more than a few seconds. It's because these coalitions are continually assembling and dispersing, assembling and dispersing. And they're multiple swirls. They're multiple eddies in the neural substrate of awareness, emerging and then passing away transiently, overlapping each other in a very complex way. Really appreciating that neurologically and experiencing it directly can take you immediately into a kind of disenchantment with all the swirling. It's just more swirling, you know, which then is the basis of the, in, of the insight into equanimity. Because you become increasingly, I want to do my French shrug, my Gallic shrug, you know. How do you do it? You know, come on. Yeah, that's it, that's it. It's like that, it's like whatever, you know, that's California talk, whatever, whatever, but anyway. Because um, it's just one more swirl. And after a while, you become increasingly disenchanted with any kind of content of mind. It's just more content. And you get more interested in what's the river itself that is continually generating or being patterned by these swirls. In other words, what is consciousness itself? What is the nature of things itself? Yeah. Patricia? Thank you. She was talking about how an MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, a major aspect of that is a stance of non-reactivity, right? Being able to stay with, that's the first phase of practice, stay with, bear, be with, let be what's there without reacting to it. I'll say a thing about relationships that's been useful for me around reactivity. It's that thing about fences make for good neighbors. <clears throat> or in psychology, there's a classic line. It's called distance in the service of attachment. Mm -hmm. That sometimes you've got to back up to stay connected, right? And um, sometimes it helps, for example, in relationships to do little things to back up so you can stay in the, in the situation. For example, <clears throat> I'll find myself in situations saying something like, especially if I'm, you know, got my head together. If I'm grounded in MBSR and, you know, I've, 
on top of my game, I might say something like, I really want to listen to you, but when you talk this fast, including with your finger going like that at me, it's harder for me to listen. I'm still going to try to listen, even if you do that, but it'll help me give you what I'm sure you want, which is me listening here, if you slow down a little and quit doing that, for example. And that's an example of a larger general technique that I think is extremely useful, which is to essentially say to someone, I want to give you what you want, and I'm going to try. And to do that, it would help me if you gave me this. See? For me to give you what you want from me, it would support that for you to give me this that I need from you. You see that? See that framing? That's a very skillful, I think, thing to do with people. It's communicating rather than reacting. Yeah, and it's setting up a framework of win-win, you know. Okay. And so, um, so sometimes, honestly, you know, if uh, someone is being really intense, I'll imagine that I'm looking at them through the wrong end of a telescope or binoculars. <laughs> Or, this is our NLP techniques, or I'll imagine that, you know, um, I'll, actually I'll, what I'll do often is I'll think about them as a little kid. And not dismissively because that naturally, then I don't feel so threatened and I'll feel more compassionate toward them. Or in particular, I'll try to see the being behind the eyes. The being behind the eyes. That's very powerful to just do that. It's a very simple practice. When someone's talking with you, especially if they're upset or bothered or something, maybe about you or maybe not, to just look at them and try to sense, not in some kind of new age staring contest. <laughs> you know, not that. That can be a little offensive. Sometimes other people actually get rattled if you look at them in the eye too much, so I will deliberately look away sometimes because I can sense that it's getting uncomfortable for the other person. But to, or it's just to imagine or sense that being, that consciousness, that presence, the person, the deepest, most fundamental, you know, the, the marrow of the bone, the essence of that person over there behind their eyes, right? The one who suffers, the one who wants to be happy, the one just like me is scared, rattled, confused, yearning for true happiness. You know, and then if we're grounded in the felt sense of the being behind their eyes, it's a lot easier to deal with them, right? When the mashed potatoes start to fly. Including, this works for kids too, especially. See the being behind their eyes. Our daughter sometimes would get into kind of a tantrum and she would become incredibly adamant, stubborn about it had to be a certain way. And I could see that behind her eyes, she was actually horrified by how rigid she was. But it was like she was on a runaway horse. But the rider was horrified that she was taking this position that she knew was not going to end well for her. <laughs> Because <laughs> we had the credit cards and the car keys, but anyway. Um, okay, all right, so moving on. Now I want to talk about empathy in a practical way. So do we have the slides, the circuits of empathy? Do we have, yep, yep, go back. Neural substrates of empathy, great. So really quickly, I've kind of made this point already. It's interesting that the brain, this very social brain, as I said, the brain is, did I say this? The brain has tripled in size since our ancestors first began making tools. Two and a half million years, the brain has tripled in size. And you know what most of that volume is for? Social skills. It's for language. 
It's for cooperative planning. It's for attachment systems. It's for empathy, right? It's for love. It's also for things like deception and gaming others and working them and stuff like that. But still, yeah, those are social skills. I want to tell you a little detail that is a little irrelevant, but it's such a great story that, and, and, and that, it, that is relevant in a different way. So they've done studies on primate bands who groom each other. You know, primates are our cousins, groom each other, right? Um, they scratch each other's backs. And uh, so they've done studies observing bands on groomers compared to groomees. In other words, the ones who give or the ones who receive. And so they studied these bands, and then they shot them with anesthetic darts, <laughs> took a blood sample, the things we do in the name of science, of stress hormones in the bodies of these different uh, primates in terms of, uh, and then they examined who got more of a stress relief benefit, the giver or the taker, the back scratcher or the one whose back was scratched. Well, the one who got the best stress relief benefit, counterintuitively, was the giver, was the groomer. Right? Isn't that interesting? Now, I used this study with my wife once. I said, honey, you know, what do you think? No. Nah, didn't fly at all. Crashed, whoops, crashed and burned, shot down before I even, you know, got to the end of the runway. Uh, but it was a good try. It was a noble, it was a noble failure. Okay, so moving on. So let's consider some things that help support people with empathy, and then we'll do a little um, practice here if you're willing to as pairs and talk about it, and then do another couple things as we end today by five. All right? So do we have skills for empathy? There we go. Now, on the one hand, even though empathy is perfectly natural, we are naturally simulating the world of others, for all the talk of that, I do not think we have neural Wi-Fi in the sense that if you just think about how easy it is historically and even currently to put people out of our heart, to make them a them to us. It reminds me of something a teacher of mine, Gil Fronstel, once said to a group. He said, you know, if you have to put someone out of your meditation sangha, you know, if you have to put someone out of your company, if you have to put someone out of your bed, but never put anyone out of your heart. That's deep teaching. That's hard. You know, think of, the again, the monk in Tibet not putting his captors and his tormentors, his torturers, out of his heart. But um, it's very, very, very easy for us to put people out of our heart, isn't it? And it begins when we make them a them to our us. All right. So to overcome that tendency and to build up the neural substrates of empathy, there are things we can do to um, be skillful with regard to empathy. And I would have to say that, um, for me, one of the most fundamental ways to be empathic is to be present with other people and to just show up. If we show up, the needle naturally starts to move. If we look at them, ideally sustain contact or we look at the face, because we're very, very attentive to social emotions in the face, and allow ourselves to be moved. It doesn't mean that we're going to be persuaded. It doesn't mean we're going to give them what they want. It doesn't mean we're going to give them a raise, let's say. It doesn't mean that we're going to go home with them. But it can mean that we allow ourselves to be moved by the other person. Right there is probably the most powerful way to be empathic, to show up and to be willing to be moved. Okay. So in a moment, um, 
I, I thought what we could do is a little bit of a paired exercise, the ones that I've told you I dread, but it really will be okay. And you can always opt out. And so what I'd like you to do, and then I'll explain it, then we'll do it, and I'll repeat the suggestions or instructions as we do it, is in a minute, not yet, you'll pick a partner, pick an A and a B, A's will go first. And so you'll take two turns, and in each turn, one person mainly talks and the other person mainly listens. So you have a speaker and a listener. All right. If you're the speaker, talk about something that's important to you. Don't go into your trauma history. Don't don't get stuck anywhere if that's true for you. And you don't have to spill your guts and you know respect yourself as someone who comes out of a kind of a new age California human potential culture. I think that people can be way too self-disclosing sometimes. <laughs> you know, I really don't need to know about your plastic surgery or you know what I mean, whatever. You know what I mean? Okay. So don't say anything you don't want to say. But if you can, talk about something that's important to you if you're the speaker. It doesn't even need to be a bad thing because it's in, we can give empathy for joy as much as empathy for sorrow. Very important. Empathy is not reserved for just the negative emotions. Okay. If you're a listener, really try to be as empathic as possible while observing what it's like to be empathic, including maybe some struggles to be empathic especially if your partner is talking about something that you find aversive. So a way to, again, help yourself be empathic is to try to relax aversion, try to relax resistance to anything that's unpleasant in what the other person is telling you. All right? In terms of those three systems, what you might do is if, the, if your partner is sitting a certain kind of way without mimic them, mimicking them, See if you can move your body into that same posture or imagine what you would be feeling or thinking if you had that posture. If your arms were crossed or you were waving your hands or if you were frowning or if you were looking off into space, what would that be like for you, for example? Also, with regard to the emotion system, um, as you can, let yourself receive the deeper feelings in the other person and let those deeper feelings in them move you as you intuit those deeper layers, which often are softer, even younger, and certainly more fundamental emotions than is what is usually on the surface, which tends to be brittle, like <coughs> anger. Okay? Third, in terms of simulating thoughts, try to get past the surface story to the underlying yearnings the underlying deep wants or deep needs in the other person, beneath their case, if you will, or their story about what's happening. And then, as you can, form little hypotheses. This part of empathy is like being a little bit of a scientist. It's active. Often we think of empathy as very passive and receptive. We're just sort of sitting here, letting our you know, tuning fork vibrate sympathetically with the vibrations coming at us. Instead, empathy is very active. It says, has a certain amount of hypothesis testing. We think, huh, is it this? And then we feel into our body, hmm, yeah, that resonates. Or is it that about them? A hypothesis, another hypothesis. And then we feel into our body and we go, hmm, no, that doesn't ring true. Okay? So any questions so far about the exercise? Ah, oh, thank you. It could be with someone you don't know or honestly if you're with someone you know and you're willing to go into the deeper end of the pool, 
lot of value there. A lot of value there. Okay? So you decide for yourself. It could be quite valuable to do it with someone you know. Particularly if it's someone you'd like more empathy from. Or it's hard to give empathy to. Because empathy is something that can also be negotiated in relationships. You know? In other words, empathy is something that you can ask for in relationships. Because if you think about it, what do we really want from our partner? We want them to give us what we want, but most fundamentally, we want them to get what we want. <laughs> we want to be understood. That's what we most deeply want. That's our deepest need, to feel felt by the other person. And when we're with people that we don't feel, feel us, we don't feel felt by, that is very problematic in an intimate relationship, in an important relationship. Yeah, Pascal. Uh, in the spirit of taking care of oneself, maybe people could ask themselves what the language I want to speak in, if I want to express myself in French, make sure you uh, find somebody who speaks that language <laughs> and, uh, or can listen to you and hear you well. That is wonderfully true. I've actually had a number of people, I love bilingualism actually, I'll tell you a little detail. Um, that on the average bilingualism confers about a five point IQ advantage. What it, that means is that on the average bilingualism, especially from a young age, um, increases lifts IQ by about a third of a standard deviation, which is big, is, is a substantial bump. It's a measurable bump. Um, Okay, that's, so it's good. Bilingualism is good. I wish I had it, but I don't. Anyway, um, so sometimes it's much more emotionally connecting to speak in your native tongue. So you might want to find a partner who shares that language with you. That's Pascal's point, right? Okay, so all right, I think, oh, I was going to say empathy can be negotiated. Yeah, empathy honestly is something to ask for. You might want to think about how to ask for it skillfully and a great way to begin is by giving empathy first, you know, the 80-20 rule. Uh, as Stephen Covey says in a, actually a very good book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, seek first to understand, then to be understood. Yeah, that's good advice. Okay, any more questions about the exercise? And I'll repeat the instructions as we go through it. Yes? I'm just wondering about selecting a topic if, 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 you know, with, with a stranger. Yeah, it's up to you. I'll give you five minutes each way. Okay, so you can get into something deep. I think a natural topic has to do with relationships because that's what we're focusing on here. It could be anything, something that matters to you. And it could be happy. It could be talking about your children, if you have children, or um, animals, or your art, or something you're doing that's really good news for you lately. Uh, very joyful. Uh, I don't. I don't know why, but I'm unusually moved by this day today. You know, I could feel teary right now. And I don't know what it is. Maybe because of French, I don't know. But anyway, I don't know. I feel very moved by it. Because I've, I've taught this workshop a fair amount and so forth. Somehow it's really touching me. So I might talk with my wife about that. Like, I have no idea, honey. I don't know. Maybe it was in the water. But <laughs> go Montreal. Um, or, or you could talk about something that's a real challenge for you. Just often the, it's the Goldie, I did a, Goldilocks is the greatest Dharma story of all time. There's usually a kind of a knowing, the just right thing to talk about. Sometimes, honestly, and this again is the deep end of the pool, if you're thinking to yourself, nope, I'm not going to talk about that. 
that might be the one. <laughs> so take care of yourself, though. You're on your own, okay? Yeah. Right? Now, if you're a listener, you're not going to solve the problem. You're not going to give advice. Do not give advice. <laughs> Zip it. Especially if you're male. But no, I'm just, that's a generalization. Okay? Uh, okay, don't give advice. It's okay to ask a question or two if you don't understand something. It's okay even to ask at a deeper level, right? And when you're, and I'll also give you the instruction when you're all done, so you want to be able to stay close enough to listen to what I'm saying, to, to say back what you heard, especially at a deeper level. And then the person you're speaking to, because if you were a listener at the end, I'll ask you to say back essentially what you heard, especially the deeper levels of what you heard or you intuit. And then if you were the speaker, I'll give you a chance to correct the other person or, or you say, yes, that's right, that's right. Or maybe realize there is a deeper level you weren't even aware of in speaking. Okay? So any more questions about the structure, the format? And it's not that complicated. It is artificial, but having done this many times, most people are surprised how real it gets how quickly. Okay? All right, any more questions? Yeah, and I'll repeat the instruction. So. It's good to grab your chairs and spread out and tend to talk softly, otherwise it could get loud. So first, if you're willing to do this and you can step out, you cannot do it. Pick a partner, find a partner. I need to keep telling these people too. Okay, oh, don't go away though. Okay. Um, so get a partner and get an A and a B. And spread out. Can you tell me how empathetic can you be? You don't have to memorize it, you don't have to. But empathy, ability to understand and wear somebody else's shoes, knowing that all our experiences are colored by who? Okay, so, and if you could, when I talk, try to be quiet, please. All right, so does everyone, do, if you want a partner and do not have one, raise your hand. Okay, there and there. If you want a partner and do not have one, please raise your hand. Any more partners? Maybe over there with the hand raise? You could talk to me. It's a blessing and a curse if you're willing to. Okay. Or does anyone else want to be his that gentleman's partner? No? Okay, good. Also, do you have an A and a B? Okay, A's take a moment and think about your topic. You don't have to talk about it. Just be clear basically what you want to talk about. So we'll talk right now. Okay. Okay, A's. Ready? Begin. How empathic can you be, you mean? Yes. Because, um, you know, I work with people who have cancer. Okay, and I'm just thinking about that poor gentleman who doesn't have a partner. I don't, sure. I don't see him, though. Leave it for a little later. But I really need you to shed some light on it because. Usually, even my students, I teach a social service worker program, and empathy is extremely important in social work, right? So, when 
with a different cultural backgrounds, with different linguistic abilities, with different life experiences, with different trauma experiences, you know, and, and all the range in between, um, you know, someone struggled with the mother-in-law, what I went through, it's like, come on, give me a break, you can deal with it, right? So, I, you know, it's just a... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.